This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language and mature themes. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 347. Learning the Ropes, a House of Bellevue story, written by L.C. Williams. One, Thursday, November 1st, 1888 Christos Reckoning, Ferna, Republic of Havane, Eastern Songafield. Volkova! Hey, Volkova! Natasha looked out over the crowded tavern and tried to figure out who was calling her name. Of the 250 soldiers in Company C, at least 50 of them were currently crammed into this one bar, all making the most of their 24-hour pass before they boarded the train for the front lines. The air was thick with sweat and smoke, both from Imperial-issue tobacco cigarettes and from the more exotic local pipeweeds. With every step, she felt the press of bodies shifting around her, Memories of the transport ship that carried them to Ferna rose unwillingly to her mind. Fortunately, at an inch over six feet tall, Natasha stood head and shoulders over most of the other patrons, so it did not take her long to spot the women who were waving at her. They wore the same Imperial Army uniform she did, and they were grinning at her in that disturbing way that Metamorians seemed to think was friendly. It made Natasha think of the horses on her father's farm— and how they would bare their teeth at each other over the hay pile. That was not a friendly gesture. But the head sergeant at Natasha's boot camp had told her that she needed to make allowances for such things, if she was going to fit in with the Imperial Army. So she waded through the crowd and slid into the booth next to her comrades. "'We were near sure you would come,' said Private Andrews a Sathmoran woman with the milk-pale skin, freckles, and frizzy red hair that were characteristic of her people. She slid a glass of some hazy yellow liquid across the table to Natasha. Here, you need to catch up. Natasha sniffed the glass experimentally. The scents of honey, citrus, and alcohol flooded her nose. She drank. Definitely mead of some sort— though whatever spices the Fernians had added to it were nothing like what they had back home in Vieshrad. That was fine by her. The Vieshans were better known for their vodka. Natasha preferred her alcohol to taste like something. The other soldier in the booth was a Peralian, with the sun-kissed skin and dark hair and eyes common to many of the peoples around the splitting sea. Private Russo wore her hair short, like a man, and she had several intricate geometric tattoos on her neck and arms. She had a sharp, angular face that was too hollow below the cheekbones, and her deep-set eyes held an intensity that always made her look slightly feral. She raised her glass to Natasha in a salute. "'I never doubted you'd be here,' she said, quirking up one corner of her lip to give her smile a lopsided edge. 
Who would give up their last night to drink before walking into the ninth hell? Not the Vietians, that's for damn sure. Natasha smirked back at Russo, raising her glass. The same is true, I think, for Paralians. She glanced over at Andrews. Or Satmorans. Exactly my point, Russo said, flashing that sharp-edged grin again. We three are all prisoners of our heredity, comrades in dissipation. Natasha did not know what dissipation meant in Imperial Common, and she was none too sure about heredity either. But Andrews said, Here, here, and clinked her glass against Russo's, so Natasha did the same. Russo knocked back the rest of her drink and set down her glass harder than was necessary. The 382nd. Yashua, Yanlin, and Yusuf, she said. She was still smiling, but there was a ragged edge to the words, one that spoke of anger simmering beneath the surface. Of all the assignments and all the regiments and all the God's damned world, we get sent to the Iron Griffins. It's a shit piece of luck it is, Andrews agreed morosely. There were two more glasses of mead sitting at the far end of the table. Wordlessly, she slid one over to Russo, who nodded her thanks. Andrews glanced at Natasha with something like pity. Especially for you, Volkova. The rest of us got drafted, but you? You feckin' volunteered, and they still sent you to the bloody meat grinder. Natasha shrugged. My people have saying, Smertza birayet nestaroya aspiloya. Death takes away not the old, but the ripe. She spread a hand, palm upward. If it is my time, if I am ripe, then I will die. If not, I will not. Russo snorted. Bullshit, she said, and smiled as she said it. There is no destiny in the universe, Volkova. The gods couldn't even predict their own fall. Never mind what's going to happen to two billion mortals. She shook her head. If this whole damned war shows us anything, it's that we can fuck everything up without their help. We got sent to Havane because some genius at high command decided they needed us, not because the fates jogged their elbow. Perhaps you are right, Natasha said. Andrews and Russo had invited her to join their table, after all. She did not want to waste that opportunity by arguing with them. She decided to change the subject. What will you do with your pass? she asked, looking at each woman in turn. You're looking at it, my dear, Andrews said, with an impish twinkle in her eye. She finished her glass of mead, slid it aside, and retrieved the last full glass in one smooth, continuous motion. Drink till we're shit-faced. Start a fight with those pricks from Company B. She waved a hand generally at the crowd around them. See if I can get one of these lads to affect me cross-eyed before morning. Russo rolled her eyes. Good luck finding one who can keep it up after all the booze. She turned conspiratorially to Natasha, lowering her voice a fraction. I keep telling Andrews here that there's nothing a man can do for her that a woman can't do better. These, she said, raising her first two fingers pressed together, will never go limp on you. With a tight-lipped smile, Andrews raised two fingers of her own toward Russo, copying the woman's gesture. 
Then she spread the fingers into a V, a gesture that the Sathmorans used to say, Fuck you. She and Russo stared each other down for a long, silent moment. Then Russo raised her own fingers to her lips and stuck her tongue between them, flexing it lewdly. Both women collapsed into a torrent of laughter. Natasha stared at them both, as if they were speaking a language she'd never heard before, which, in a way, they were. So, you are... Natasha tried to remember the word in common, but it wasn't coming to mind. You like girls? I do, Russo purred. She wrapped her lips sensually around the words. And the word you're looking for is invert. Or tripid, if you're more old-fashioned. I don't suppose you would have learned either of those words in your language classes. Natasha shook her head. I learned common mostly from talking to imperial merchants. I know many words about goats and sheep and grains and vegetables. Not so many about... about sex. She lowered her eyes to her drink again. Ah, you're blushing fierce, Andrews said, sounding both surprised and delighted. Have you nay done it yet, Volkova? Are we two reprobates in the presence of a virgin? Natasha could feel the heat in her face, and it was only partly due to the alcohol. Yet, I was with boy once, years ago. I thought that, well, it does not matter what I thought. It was not nice. I did not like it. Can't say I'm surprised, Russo said. Men don't know shit about any bodies but their own. But they can be taught, Andrews said. She slid out of the booth and gathered up the empties. The next round is on me, dears. Be back in a few. The Sathmoran woman walked off in the direction of the bar, a little sachet in her hips. Natasha noticed that she headed for a spot next to a tall, muscular Fernian man, whom she accidentally brushed against. While he turned to see who had touched him, Andrews leaned in way over the bar to get the bartender's attention, giving the room a fine view of her shapely ass in the process. Her trousers fit so tightly over her curves that Natasha wondered if she'd altered her uniform. Russo was very clearly admiring the show, even though it wasn't meant for her. She sighed. That woman is wasted as a breeder, she said. Why do so many of the cute ones have to want men? Natasha shrugged. I suppose because we need to make babies. Russo barked a laugh. <laughs> there are ways around that. They can do amazing things with magic, you know. She paused, then asked casually. What about you? Ever tried it with a woman? Natasha shook her head. Yet, but... I thought about it. She took another drink of the mead and considered whether she wanted to tell the story. But Russo would understand, at least, and understanding was something she'd gotten far too little of. There was this girl in my village, she said. Yulia. She was the baker's daughter. She was very pretty and sweet and... and kind. When I came to town to buy bread, we talked. There were not many girls our age, you see, mostly mothers and old babushkas. 
We would talk about many things, not just bread. Whatever I was feeling, she always listened. Even when I tripped over my words and forgot what I meant to say. She turned her class this way and that, watching the light refract through the golden liquid. I was too scared to tell her what I felt about her. Scared what would happen if she did not feel the same way. Scared what would happen if she did. She glanced up at Rousseau. The Ashrad is not like the Empire. To be... invert. This is very dangerous. Illegal. I've heard that, Rousseau said, looking serious for the first time that evening. Pyralis does a lot of trading with Vyeshrad, I'm sure you know. I've got friends who came back with horror stories. She took a long drink from her mead and did not elaborate. Over at the bar, the big Fernian was now chatting with Andrews, their heads close together. She reached over and covered his hand with her own and flashed that unsettling grin again. The Fernian did not seem to mind. I don't think we'll be getting that next round she promised us, Russo said. She seems busy, Natasha agreed. Russo drained the last of her drink, then finished Andrews's for good measure. <laughs> right. Come on, Volkova. She slid out of the booth and headed for the exit. Natasha stared after her. Russo was walking like a woman on a mission, and she did not look back to see whether Natasha was obeying her. She just seemed to assume she would. Curious and not having anything better to do, Natasha did so. She threaded her way through the crowd and caught up with Russo a dozen paces down the street. Where are we going? she asked. Andrews had the right idea, Russo said, but she's looking in the wrong place. If you need a job done right, you don't trust it to an amateur. This answer baffled Natasha. We need job? Russo glanced aside at her, baring her teeth again in that feral, too sharp smile. The light of the gas lamps reflected in her dark eyes. It made them look like they were burning. You'll see what I mean. They turned off of the main road and down a series of narrow side streets, through residential neighborhoods where the houses were packed in close together. In a few minutes, they came to an elegant-looking two-story house, the only building lit on an otherwise darkened street. Its front door stood open, the light within shining through a beaded curtain and spilling out onto the cobblestones. Two gas lamps hung over the entrance, shrouded behind housings of red-tinted glass. A pair of guards flanked the door on either side, their heavy falchions gleaming at their hips. Russo stopped in front of one of them, her arms spread at her sides. The man patted her down finding and removing the knife that she kept in a hidden boot sheath. Russo surrendered the blade without complaint. After a moment's hesitation, Natasha allowed the other guard to search her. She wasn't carrying a weapon, and once he became convinced of this, he waved her wordlessly inside. The door opened onto a lavishly appointed sitting room, with plush upholstered couches, soft carpets, and velvet curtains, all in rich shades of red and gold. In one corner, a musician played a stringed instrument that Natasha did not recognize, and which seemed to be tuned to a different scale from the ones she knew. It filled the air with a melody that sounded gentle and peaceful, if unfamiliar. 
On the wall directly opposite the entrance, a circular wooden placard hung from a pair of golden chains. Engraved on the placard was the stylized image of an orchid blossom above an upward-facing crescent moon. Natasha recognized it from a pamphlet her health instructor had given her at boot camp. A woman appeared from behind one of the curtains. She was dressed in a brightly patterned garment of flowing silk and had the dusky skin and wavy black hair common to most songafilders. Her russet brown eyes were lined with coal, and gold jewelry adorned her ears, nose, neck, and wrists. She smiled at Russo and Natasha in greeting, but unlike the bared teeth of the Imperials, it was a subtle gesture, close-lipped and touched with an air of quiet amusement. "'Good health to you, travellers,' she said, in common almost as thickly accented as Natasha's. "'Welcome to the House of Comfort. How can we lighten your burdens this night?' Russo gestured for Natasha to wait, then stepped forward and spoke to the hostess. Their conversation was low and quick, full of words that Natasha either half-heard or did not know. The song filder looked up at Natasha once with what seemed to be a measuring gaze, then turned back to Russo. At last the soldier pulled out her coin purse. Natasha did not see how much money changed hands, but she caught the telltale gleam of silver imperial marks. Back home in Vieshrad, even one of those coins could feed a family of four for a week. The hostess slipped Russo's payment into a hidden pocket of her robes, then crossed the room and drew back one of the curtains, revealing a narrow hallway behind. She gestured for Russo and Natasha to step through, and they did so. Natasha felt a flutter in her stomach, and she wasn't sure whether it was excitement, or nervousness, or a little bit of both. She had heard stories about places like this. The parlors of the sensualists' guild, where skilled and beautiful women, and men, and even androgynes, could minister to a hundred different needs of the body and spirit. Sex was only one of the services they offered, though it was certainly always in high demand. Other offerings ranged from the physical, massage, acupuncture, beauty care, to the mental, sexual education, couples counseling, guided meditation, to the magical, shape-shifting, virility potions, even elaborate fantasies brought to life with arcane illusions. Every port city in the world had prostitutes, but a guild parlor was something far more precious and rare. They were held to the highest standards of professionalism, cleanliness, and public health, which was why the army's health instructors endorsed them. The whole idea still seemed fantastical to Natasha, though. There were no guild parlors in Vieshrad, and much of their work would have been illegal. They followed the hostess past several curtain-shrouded chambers, Natasha could clearly hear the sounds of people moaning behind at least two of them, and stopped at a heavy wooden door with an ancient-looking handle of wrought iron. The hostess pulled open the door, which squealed dramatically on its hinges, revealing a darkened chamber beyond. "'Please make yourselves comfortable,' she said pleasantly. "'Samar will be with you shortly.' "'Thank you,' Russo said, and stepped inside. Natasha hesitated, Nothing about this darkened chamber seemed inviting, but Russo's footsteps sounded clearly on the stone floor within, and nothing leapt out of the darkness to attack her. At last her curiosity got the better of her, and she followed Russo into the room. 
the hostess swung the squealing door shut behind them. After a moment, Natasha's eyes adjusted, and she realized that the room was not completely dark. A soft red illumination came from a series of small glowing orbs in the ceiling. Natasha stared at one of them in fascination. It had to be magic, used to create an atmosphere that could not be replicated with gas lights and candles. But why? What was the purpose in making a sensualist's boudoir look like something out of the deeper hells? She turned to study the rest of the room, now that she could see it. A large bed stood against the far wall, the covers and pillowcases gleaming like satin. It sat in a frame that superficially resembled a canopy bed, but there was no fabric canopy above it, and the posts and girders were all made of sturdy wrought iron. An array of metal rings and hooks were mounted here and there all over the bed frame, and more of them protruded from the heavy wooden headboard. Several coils of rope sat by the bedside, each of a different weight and material. Natasha was mystified. There were other pieces of furniture in the room as well, but they were even more confusing than the bed. Curiously shaped chairs with the seats missing, benches that bent at odd angles, a large X-shaped cross against one wall. All of them seemed vaguely menacing, especially in the blood-red lighting. Russo walked idly between them, inspecting each one in turn. What? What is this place? Natasha asked. The words came out quiet and a little shaky. A playroom, Russo said. Natasha could hear that savage grin in her voice, even if she only caught the barest glint of teeth in the dim light. Natasha looked at something that might have been a medieval stockade, but had obviously been made much more recently. I do not think this place is safe for children, Russo chuckled. <laughs> a playroom for grown-ups, she clarified. I think you'll like the games we play here, Volkova. She circled back around the room, taking slow, prowling steps like a jungle cat, and came to a stop just in front of Natasha and a little to one side. Her eyes gleamed red in the darkness, though it had to be a trick of the light. See, I've got a sense about you, about the sort of person you are, or could be. She took a half-step closer, leaning in until Natasha could feel her breath against her cheek. Her smile was very wide now. I think I want to see that version of you. Natasha said nothing, and the silence stretched between them. She felt frozen in place, terrified at this sudden intimacy, but also aroused, and deeply, painfully curious. She was on the edge of something she had never known existed. She still did not know what it was, and could not look away until she knew. The door squealed open again, which saved her from having to think of a response. She turned and saw another woman enter the room. She was a little thing, five feet at most and lightly built. But she held her head high and stepped into the darkened chamber like she owned the place. She gestured toward the ceiling and spoke a few words in a language Natasha did not know. Immediately the lights grew brighter, shifting from red to a soft white. Natasha took the opportunity to study their new companion closely. Like the hostess, she was dressed in layered robes of fine silk. 
gauzy white, bright yellow, several shades of blue. Her skin was the same reddish-brown as the sandstone cliffs to the southwest of Ferna, her large eyes so dark a brown that they were nearly black. She wore a headscarf that covered her hair and neck while leaving her face exposed, a fashion common among the desert peoples of Songafield. Natasha found it impossible to guess her age. She could have been twenty-five, or twice that. Certainly those eyes had depths that spoke of hard-earned wisdom and maturity. The woman bowed to them both from the waist, and Natasha and Russo returned the gesture. Hello again, Madeline, she said, speaking to Russo. Natasha realized in that moment that she had never before heard her companion's first name. I see you have brought a friend this time. She turned her attention fully to Natasha then, her dark eyes scanning her up and down. Greetings, traveler. I am Samar. What may I call you? Unconsciously, Natasha ducked her head. I am Natasha, ma'am. The honorific came automatically. Samar crossed over toward the bed, keeping her eyes on Natasha as she moved. And has Madeline explained what it is we do here, Natasha? She said, It is playroom for grown-ups. Samar's lips turned up in a restrained hint of a smile. It was a subtle expression, and Natasha liked her immediately for it. That is one way to describe it. She glanced over at Russo, one delicate brow arching upward. Perhaps not the most informative, though. Russo shrugged, unperturbed. She's Vietian. Thought it would be best to ease her into it. Perhaps, Samar allowed. She settled onto the bed, folding her legs beneath her. Natasha noticed she was barefoot. Gold rings with gemstones gleamed on at least three of her toes. She patted the space beside her on the bed. Come sit with me, Natasha. We have things to discuss. Natasha obeyed. As she did so, she noticed Russo moving about the room with more purpose now, carrying a small table over next to the bed, opening boxes and chests and pulling out more items Natasha did not understand. Samar leaned forward and looked up into Natasha's eyes, drawing her attention back to herself. The house of comfort tends to the needs of the body and spirit, Samar said. Some of those needs are universal, or nearly so. Others are more particular and specialized. She spread her hands, palms upward, to take in the room around them. This is my chamber. Here we practice the exchange of power through acts of dominance and submission. Do you know these words? Natasha frowned, thinking. They sounded vaguely familiar, but she could not have defined them. She shook her head. A submissive is one who enjoys yielding their power to another, Samar said. She gestured toward her own heart. This is my space. Nothing happens here unless I permit it. But it pleases me to surrender my body to another's control, to let them command me, discipline me, and reward me as if they were my master. Natasha frowned again. But why? Samar showed that small, restrained smile again. Only the great maker knows, she said. 
but playing this role fills my heart with peace and satisfaction. Even the pain my master gives me is a kind of pleasure. Natasha glanced over at Rousseau again. The woman had drawn out from one of the boxes a long, thin cane, barely the thickness of a pencil, and glossy black. She swung it experimentally through the air, and it made a soft swishing noise. Then she whipped it against the back of her own leg, winced, and grinned. Madeline is the opposite of myself, Samar continued. She is a dominant. Dominants take the power that submissives offer them and use it as they wish. They take on the role of a master, as I take on the role of a slave. Once the scene begins, she can command me to do whatever she wishes. She can punish me, or pleasure me, or use me in whatever way she sees fit. Something wordless and primal ran through Natasha at this. Arousal, yes, but also more than that. It was like hearing church bells ring and having those same vibrations resonate deep inside her chest. The sensation alarmed her, and there was a long moment before she could find her voice. But how do you know she will not do something terrible to you? Samar's eyes sparkled. If she did not do something at least slightly terrible to me, I would consider it a disappointment, she said, sounding amused. The fear that comes with being in another's power is part of what makes it exciting. But to answer your real question, there are terms to the exchange, terms that must be negotiated in advance. Madeline knows what I will permit, and what I forbid, because we have discussed those things before. Remember, the power is mine. I only choose to let her have it for a while. Natasha nodded slowly. What if she does something you do not like? Something you did not think of? We have a safe word, Samar said. A special word that stops the scene at once. Then we talk about what happened and what we need in order to move forward. That made sense to Natasha. The military had plenty of code words that triggered that sort of instant obedience. But something about all this still amazed her. There is much talking in this she said. I do not remember so much talking with sex. You are correct, Samar said. Most people say very little to their partners during sex. I consider this very unfortunate. One cannot reasonably expect one's partner to guess everything that one needs. She pointed over to the stockade without looking at it. But in power exchange, we must communicate. The games we play can cause serious harm if we do not, and so we learn habits that serve us in good stead elsewhere. That's sad, Russo said, coming over and leaning against one of the support pillars of the bed's canopy. There is such a thing as too much talking. You ready to give our friend here a show? Samar rose from the bed and turned to face Russo, but she kept her eyes on Natasha. Remember, if anything happens here that upsets you, you are free to leave at any time. I will be more than happy to talk to you further when our scene is finished. But once we begin, I must obey Madeline's instructions. Natasha nodded once. I understand. Very good. Samar stepped up in front of Russo and knelt, 
bowing her head. I am ready, mistress. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2022 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.